Uh, we've been talking a lot about this building being our new home, uh, having a home for the first time. And it's interesting, this, just this idea of home and how powerful it is. Uh, there's, there's so many good songs, for instance, about home. Uh, you may have your own favorite song that uh, is about home. I'm just going to mention a few that are pretty well known. There's Homeward Bound by Simon and Garfunkel. There's Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinnerd. Um, I know there's a couple of Alabamans who I said that for particularly. Um, there's Take Me Home, Country Road uh, by John Denver. There's uh, a, a song that my kids like. I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate. My House by Flo Rida. Um, my Town by Montgomery Gentry. There's a Small Town by John Cougar Mellencamp. There's uh, Home by Michael Buble. There's Home, again, like so many songs just called Home. Home by Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, which I love that band name, by the way. Um, and it's just funny just to look these up, and literally like every genre of music is like represented with this theme of home. Uh, it reminds me of a song that's been popular recently, uh, well, in the last few years anyway, by uh, American Idol winner Philip Phillips, what a name, and that song also is called Home. And then there's another American Idol contestant, Daughtry, who made a name for himself, and he also had a song called Home, and in it he sings this. He says, I'm going home, back to the place where I belong, and where your love has always been enough for me. I'm not running from, no, I think you got me all wrong. I don't regret this life I chose for me, but these places and these faces are getting old, so I'm going home Well, I'm going home. There's something about home that is so meaningful to each and every one of us. It could be this idea about how family or our hometown defines who we are. It could be just this longing to be back home. It could be just this nostalgia of the place where we grew up, our home. It could be home as a place where we feel like we belong. It could be home in the sense of the place where we feel loved. It could be home as the place where we feel like our people are. And today's passage in Jeremiah really is about home. It's about where we as Christians are supposed to call home. And we're going to look into that a little bit. But in order to do that, I do want to share a little bit about um, the prophet Jeremiah and the book of Jeremiah to give us a little context for this passage, which uh, I think really has become quite popular. And it was interesting for me just to, to dive into studying a little bit. But um, so a few things about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of God called to be a prophet at a very young age um, in 627 BC. And he, and he served as a prophet for 40 years, a long time. In, in that process, he had become a priest and he was from a small town, from a small tribe, and perhaps from a deposed priestly line. And he lived close enough to, to Jerusalem to know what was going on in Jerusalem, and yet far away enough from it to be able to criticize what was going on with the people of God, the temple of God, and the worship of God without fear. Now, he really did have a difficult life. His messages were not well received. His very hometown plotted against him. And he endured persecution as he pursued ministry um, for 40 years. He never married um, at God's command. And he was a, a faithful preacher. And yet we only have record of two positive responses to his preaching. Uh, Baruch, his scribe, was one positive response. And then an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech. These are the only two mentions of, of his successful ministry, so to speak. And yet, 
he persevered um, throughout his years to serve God, even though uh, there was very, very little positive response. And um, I guess I'm the only, well, there's actually another preacher in here, but if you put yourself in the shoes of a preacher and you imagine preaching for 40 years and having only two people respond positively to your message, that's pretty discouraging. And Jeremiah is known uh, as the weeping prophet, um, perhaps due to the nature of his life and his ministry, but um, perhaps a better um, phrase for him would be persevering prophet, because his life is also a testament to being determined, being devoted, and dedicated to the Lord, to long-suffering, really a perfect description of what long-suffering is, and, and really being a visionary follower of God when really very few others wanted to follow God in that way. And really, even the, the book of Jeremiah, as we have it in Scripture, is, is a testament to, to Jeremiah's faith, to his scribe Baruch's faith, and to the work of the Holy Spirit in pulling together um, this book that we have that teaches us so much. And it reminds me of the passage in Peter 1.21 that says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, the purpose of the book of Jer- Jeremiah was, was spoken in a time, um, of, of a tumultuous time in Judah. Israel had already split uh, to northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern ki- kingdom had essentially stopped walking with the Lord, and southern kingdom was still kind of hanging on Judah, as it was known. And Jeremiah served during Josiah's reign. He was known as really the last good, faithful, obedient king. And what we see is political, social, financial, spiritual decay um, happened very quickly in a short span of two decades, um, and Babylon would finally succeed in, in taking over Israel, taking possession of the land. And, and God made it clear that it, it was a judgment against Israel for having been unfaithful to the Lord for so long. Other prophets that we have in Scripture that speak to this, the same time period are Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And again, Jeremiah's calling for faithfulness and obedience to God's people and uh, in their relationship with God. And Jeremiah perseveres in that and calls people to repentance over 100 times in the book of Jeremiah. It's really, it's a message that I think we as the American church need to hear today as well. But there is a unique contribution that Jeremiah provides as well in scripture Um, There's a unique contribution of describing in the Old Testament what the new covenant is to come and the beauty of that new covenant expressed uh, in a fresh way. For us as new covenant believers, uh, it it may seem very like, oh yeah, that's what we believe as Christians. But uh, for when Jeremiah spoke of it, it was was very fresh and and, um, not spoken of in that way. Now the section we're in, uh, and I'm going through all this because I feel like this, this passage gets taken out of context a lot. Jeremiah 29 is the last chapter in sort of a middle section in Jeremiah, um, chapters 26 to 29. And in this section, Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah, is confronting those with false beliefs specifically. And uh, chapter 26, um, Jeremiah is speaking against uh, Israelites believing that God will continue to show grace towards them um, because of the temple's existence. And he's trying to warn that just because the temple still exists, that it doesn't mean that God approves of Judah. And he's speaking against uh, this belief that Babylon will not conquer Judah and speaking against how Babylon's 
power would cease soon and that how exile would end, end quickly, speaking against all these false beliefs that people had. Now, when we look at it as New Covenant Christians, we can't apply this to our lives directly. Um, but the larger principle of this section and really this book is, is really important for us as believers. And that overarching principle is the presumption of God's favor. And for us, if, we, if we've grown up as, as Christians particularly, it's easy to presume oh yeah, God loves me, oh yeah, God has grace for me, God forgives me, without really examining, are we walking in obedience to the Lord as he has described in scripture? And really, you know, in the American church, it could be really the, you know, the theologically conservative or the theologically, theologically liberal that fall prey to this thinking. It's just a human thing to fall prey to this understanding that we just can presume upon God's grace it could be because we think we are so theologically accurate that God must show us favor, or perhaps we think we're, we, we're loving so inclusively that God must have favor for us. Either way, we cannot presume upon God's grace and favor to us. God's grace came at the cost of the death of God himself. And it was free for us, yes, but... It was for the sake of restoring humans into relationship with God. And Jeremiah is trying to call them to see God's grace, yes, but to also to respond in obedience and faithfulness to God. And so it was in this, in this section and in this book that we see that it's, the context is Israel is being taken captive by Babylon, Babylon. And Jeremiah is speaking God's word into it, God's prophecy Let's dig into some of the details of this then and really what I wanted to hone in on, but I wanted to give a little bit of context. Verse four says this, it says, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it just lets us know the audiences are those who are in exile. And the first point I want to make is, is simply this. We too are in exile. This is not our home. I love the irony of being in our building for the first time and saying that. We too are in exile. This is not our home. The audience to whom Jeremiah uh, spoke to and is written for um, thought that exile would end soon. They presumed upon God's grace that exile would end soon. And yet what we see is, is that Babylon possessed Israel and had shipped off many of the, the best young men from Israel into exile in Babylon. So think you growing up in the church, you know, all the stories you heard about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, these are the, the, those who were sent into exile in Babylon. And, and there were many Israelites who thought soon this exile would end, and Jeremiah was speaking against that. They presumed upon God's grace that exile would end soon. You know, for us today, I think it's easy for us to think we are not in exile, but the reality is we live in a broken world. We live in, in a place where sin has been introduced and exists. And God is saying he doesn't want this world to be the way as it is. And he wants to deliver this world from the brokenness. And therefore, we as Christian believers, we recognize we are also in exile. We are not yet in the promised land, that this is not our home. We have this tendency to think that maybe it's just getting caught up in just everyday life. We just think, oh, yeah, whatever. This world is my home. I'm not in exile. 
Or perhaps our theology lends us to think that, well, God has already made God's kingdom to come here. Certainly there's truth to that, but we can, we can overemphasize that fact and forget the amount of brokenness that still exists in this world. This is not our home. Ultimately, the truth is also, because this is a popular saying in Christian circles, ultimately the truth is not heaven is our home. That's not the trajectory of the biblical story. The trajectory of the biblical story is ultimately God is bringing heaven down to earth. He is remaking this earth so that those who love and serve him will bring glory to his name and that there will be no more sin, no more suffering, and all evil will be eradicated. God will return his people to the promised land. He will remake this world into the promised land. That is what he is at work to do. And therefore, we are in exile still. We are not home. The thing is, if we are able to hold that intention, if we are able to remember that we are in exile, when we suffer, we shouldn't be surprised. We live in a broken world. When we feel like we don't belong, we shouldn't be surprised because we're not home. When we see our world is broken and divisive and people are, are, are biting and arguing against one another, we shouldn't be surprised. We're not home yet. We shouldn't be surprised when we struggle with our own sin, indulging in the things of the world as opposed to rejoicing in who God is. We shouldn't be surprised because we are not home and we still walk around in brokenness ourselves. Now, when I say we shouldn't be surprised, I'm not saying we should just bear it up and suck it up and just, you know, not have any feelings. What I mean by we shouldn't be surprised is that in those moments of genuine pain and struggle against our own brokenness, our own sin, those are the moments where we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Remake this world into our home, into a place that glorifies you. In those moments, we ask Jesus to fulfill that longing we have for this place to be home, and that we, in those moments, confess ourselves and our own hearts the ways in which we have made this world the ultimate thing, made this world our ultimate home, and put all of our hopes in it. We have to remember we still wait upon God to reverse things such that this world will no longer be a place where it's not the way it's supposed to be, but the world becomes a place where this is the way that God meant for it to be all along. So remember, we are in exile. This is not our home. But it's interesting how Jeremiah continues. He says in verse five, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So the second thing we see here is this, we are to act like this is our home. We're to act like this is our home and seek the welfare, seek shalom of those around us. We are to act like this is our home and seek the welfare, seek the shalom of those around us. Now this word welfare um, probably doesn't have very positive connotations really in our culture today. To be on welfare is not such a great thing that people 
aspire towards, but welfare is the Hebrew word shalom, and the word shalom often gets translated as peace, but really the English word peace doesn't capture um, the full meaning of the Hebrew word. It does have these aspects of peace and plenty, and so shalom is not just the absence of conflict or turmoil. It is this positive blessing, especially in our relationship with God, and it reminds particularly the Israelites, and should remind us as well as Christians, that the people of Israel were true to their calling when they brought blessing to the Gentiles, when they brought the blessings of God to the Gentiles. And what it means for us today is that we are to work for the common good in this world. We are to work for the common good because believing and trusting that working for the common good is a way in which we can point to the goodness of God and point to the plan of God in this world. When we seek good for our society, then we too will experience the goodness that comes from seeking that common good. We will share in it with others. Now, it's hard to say this, to seek the common good, because I don't know. I don't know all your backgrounds, what kind of church you grew up in, or... But I think what we see, regardless, is we often, as Christians, are often in cultural opposition or cultural war against the world, against non-Christians specifically, and sometimes even just against one another, sadly. And often what our cultural wars signify is that we really don't trust God to bring about the work of remaking this world into what he has always intended for it to be. We feel like we have to take control of remaking this world into what God wants. We make ourselves the arbiter and upholder of God's truth rather than trust God to be the one who does that. It really is an important thing to say again and again. It's not meant to be us versus them as Christians. And I just see too much of that. And, and, and sadly, you know, sometimes in discussions amongst ministers, even in my own denomination, there's so much us versus them, which is laughable because ministers in this denomination have so much in common. You have to agree to so much of the same theological stuff, and yet there are cultural wars existing within one relatively small denomination. And so much more when we face all the diversity and difference of opinions around us. But as Christians, it's, we're not meant to live as us versus them against non-Christians. It's, it's funny to me. Our family has been watching a lot of Survivor. I don't know how we got onto it, but we're like binge-watching Survivor this summer, like all these past seasons, and the kids love it. But it makes me think, because I've got Survivor on the brain, it's like as Christians, we start thinking, we're on Survivor, and the, the title for that season is Survivor, Christians versus Non-Christians. And we just have to like battle it out as Christians standing together against all the non-Christians to bring them down. It is true that God's holiness and goodness means that we're going to have different views with others from the world, from non-Christians. That's been true throughout Scripture. It's tr- true in the book of Jeremiah. It's just true in different eras where believers have lived. But God says essentially in this passage, even when 
we feel that others are against us, we must be for them. Even when we feel that others are against us, we must be for them. Even when we disagree with them, we must be for them. In the Old Testament, Israel was meant to be a light to the non-Jews of all the nations. They were supposed to bring the blessing of God to all the nations. They were supposed to be for everyone. Yes, they had to reflect the holiness of God as well, but it was meant to be pointing them to God, pointing them to God's shalom and God's blessing. And as we think about Jesus, Jesus says, love your enemies. Jesus is not saying, make as many enemies as possible and then love them. Be a real jerk about the truth you hold to and love them. He's just saying, I think primarily, enemies exist in this world. You're going to make enemies of some kind. You have to love them still. And he says, you know, if you follow me, you will be persecuted. You're to love your persecutor still. We are called to love our enemies. And certainly, when we see this in the early church, they did this so well. I mean, they experienced persecution that we just can't understand. And we see it historically. We see it in, in church in different parts of the world today where Christians are persecuted. And we see it certainly in America in some extent too. We, we, I don't think people would say Christianity is so super popular in America today. You know, there's pockets of it where it's like, yeah, Christianity, yay. And then there's like huge pockets where it's like, oh, Christians are all jerks. God says, seek the welfare, seek the shalom for all of those who disagree with you, all those who live around you, for our shalom is wrapped up in their shalom. Seeking shalom points them to the one who brings the true shalom, the ultimate shalom, the eternal state of shalom. It's hard, right? It's just hard. You know, it's, it sounds great. But as we think about the divisiveness in our nation, it's like, okay, sounds good. But in reality, how do we seek shalom together? How do we seek common good together when we're so divided? A book that I really appreciate that someone Instagrammed recently reminded me of it is John Inazu's Confident Pluralism. If you haven't heard it, haven't read it, I encourage you to, to read it and wrestle with it. Or if you don't have patience to read a whole book, just uh, Google John Inazu, Confident Pluralism. And um, he wrote a couple of articles for Christianity Today as well, and he gives a summary of kind of the idea behind this. And I would summarize really his idea as this, is this is my, I'm not very smart, I'm certainly no John Inazu. He says this, uh, I would summarize what he says as this, we don't have to be in control as Christians. We don't have to be in control because God is in control. Or differently, we could say we can be confident, tolerant, humble, and patient because we have hope in God. We don't have to be in control because God is in control. We can be confident, tolerant, humble, and patient because we have hope in God. So let me say what he says a little bit and read it to you, give a little bit of sense of this. Christians can make the Christian life, I'm sorry, that's, I, was, I was reading myself, I'm not trying to quote myself. Uh, <laughs> Christians have a much greater reason for confidence, one rooted in the theological virtue of hope. 
regardless of our circumstances, we can engage in this messy and uncertain world because we trust that God is in control because of our confidence in the gospel. Christians should see not only the challenges of pluralism, but also its opportunities. This was the focus of an article that Tim Keller and I wrote for Christianity Today last year. We concluded with these words, the audacity of Christian hope is that Jesus Christ came into the world reconciling all things to himself. He is both the subject and object of our confidence. And as generations of saints who have come before us have testified in word and in deed, he is sufficient. It is with that hope and that confidence that we engage in the world in an anxious age. Just reflect on that for a second. That is so often not how we live as Christians in this world. We feel insecure. We feel persecuted. We're afraid to speak for our faith. Sometimes we're even afraid maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe the Christian faith is just this oppressive thing. Maybe I should give it up. But he continues. As Christians, we should display this kind of confidence in our daily lives, rooted in love of God and love of neighbor. We should concern ourselves with repairing the social fabric around us rather than looking solely to our own interests. We can serve lavishly and risk boldly, stepping outside of our comfort zones with our time, money, and reputations. We have no reason to fear because we know that God holds our lives and our world in his hands. That was from his article, why I'm still confident about confident pluralism. It was kind of a follow-up a few years later. I hope we can recognize as Christians that God says we are to act like this is our home and to seek the shalom of those around us and that we have very good reason to do so because of our hope in Christ, because of what Christ has done. But let's wrap up with this, this last um, couple of verses points us back to the hope that we have that we just spoke of. In verse 13, he says, Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you. It reminds us that whatever earthly shalom that we seek here in this world and that we experience, it's meant to point us to God who is the ultimate fulfillment of that shalom. Whatever earthly shalom we experience here on earth, meant to point us to God who is the ultimate fulfiller of that shalom through Jesus Christ. Seeking shalom, physical, spiritual, emotional, for ourselves and for the flourishing of our neighbors is an act of trust. If you've been in service to others in any way, you recognize there's only so much you can do and you just have to try to be faithful to the opportunity given you, and then you entrust it to God to bear fruit. When we live out our faith, live out our gospel through our words and our deeds, it is an act of trust. We really don't know what fruit God will bear through our efforts. We do it because we have been first loved by God. And we have to do it knowing we're, we're not ourselves as humans bringing in the kingdom of God. We're not in control. God is the one who brings in the kingdom of God. God is the one who makes and remakes this world to be our home that we always wanted it to be. We simply have to be faithful to the task he's called us to share the gospel in word and deed, to seek shalom of those around us.
when we seek the shalom of others around us, we have to be reminded because we live in a broken world that, again, this is not our home, that we are in exile, that our efforts will only go so far, and that we must be pointed to the one who will bring it about. And the beauty of that is we are told that this is the promise of God, that he wants to make us one with him. And even Jeremiah speaking to perhaps Israel at one of its worst times in its unfaithfulness, there's still this beautiful message of hope to the people of God. If you seek me, I will be found by you. For all the times that we as broken people have sought only our shalom, we need the gospel. For all the times that we have gone to war with others rather than trust God, we need the gospel. For all the times we have put our confidence in our own human efforts rather than God's, we need the gospel. For all the times that we have not trusted God's effort to bring in the kingdom of God, we need the gospel. And the gospel tells us that Jesus loves us so much that though we may continue try to take control of things, he will love us, he will forgive us, he will show us grace time and time again. And if we seek him, we can find him and trust that he is for us, that he loves us, that he always wants to be one with us, even when we turn away. Christ on the cross means this. It means that whenever we seek God at the cross, he will be found by us. He has opened the way, and it's always wide open if we want to turn to him. He has demonstrated his dedication and his love for us on the cross. And so as we come to the Lord's table, we see it, the gospel displayed powerfully for us to remind us that though we want to take control of our lives for ourselves, not for God, not for others, that there is forgiveness always. And that when there's forgiveness, there's also a promise to fill us anew with his grace, with his righteousness, with his goodness, so that we might be sent out again from this little brick building to serve this city, to seek the welfare of this city, to seek the shalom of those around us. I hope that as you come to this table, you come seeing that shalom has been purchased for you. And this table demonstrates the hope that we have and the confidence that we can have in that hope. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's often a struggle for us to really